Hi, thanks for tuning in and welcome to the latest episode of Unspun, a podcast by Population. This week, we're going to talk about the domestic sewn goods industry and leading a truly purpose-driven organization with Ngozi Okaro. Don't go away. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome to Unspun, a podcast by Population, unraveling what's holding us back from regeneration and liberation in the fashion and home industries. I'm Lauren Hill. I'm Danielle Arzaga. And I'm Catherine Tedrow. We're the founders of Population, a change agency blending the creative and strategic to embed an integrated approach to sustainability into brand, marketing, and business model strategy. We convene the much-needed conversations about systems change by centering stakeholders across the entire value chain, all the way from supply to demand, to co-create solutions to the biggest sustainability challenges facing our industry. Today, we're speaking with Ngozi Okaro about her work with Custom Collaborative, the Harlem, New York-based organization she founded that, in her own words, serves the underinvested by training, mentoring, and advocating for and with women from low-income and immigrant communities to launch careers in sustainable fashion. Hi, Ngozi. Welcome to Unspun. Thanks for joining us today. Hi. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. We're really excited to have you. You occupy a really unique space in the industry. Can you tell us why and how you started bridging the gap between low income and immigrant communities you work with in the fashion industry? For sure. I, as a tall person, have the best luck when I have my clothes made for me rather than buying clothes off the rack, which fit almost nobody, and then getting them altered. And there was a woman who was making dresses for me, Mariama, and she just did amazing work. She lives in the Bronx and she charged me next to nothing. And so I talked to her about what were the things that she would need in order to have a bigger business. She told me that when she was in Guinea, where she's from, she had eight people working with her. So it was amazing. Like this woman was actually already a business owner. And I was thinking, oh, here, I can help you be a a big business owner. But she just needed like the tools and the access. And I think that from that, I thought about how many other women could learn to sew or who, if they already knew how to sew, could learn some more business skills and have businesses that really added value to the world because they would be making clothes that fit people. They would be making, you know, using sustainable resources. And so then I just like had this idea and it grew from there. So I think that my first idea was probably 2015. And then today, here we are three programs later, having graduated eight women from our training program, we've developed a cooperative, we have a business incubator. So so basically, it was about my personal clothing needs. And then so many people would stop me on the street asking me where I got this item made. And I would say like, oh, well, you just go to Mariama and you do this and do that. And it was too much for people. And so I just decided, well, we need to make it easier. I love that. I also love how you talk about the kind of pairing skills that women already have in sewn goods with in enabling them to develop a business with skills that you may already have. And one of the things that I notice a lot, and it's changing a little bit, but in the conversation around the trade 
of being a sewer or a seamstress is that globally, we sometimes talk about it as this like low skill trade and it is not that at all. It's like, well, could, could anyone just walk off the street and sew a garment? They couldn't. So we need to stop talking about it as this low skill trade because it is highly skilled and requires a lot of expertise for someone to really thrive in that. And so I think it's amazing that you're looking at how can you support communities and women to evolve and develop their skill into something that can be sustainable and viable for them from a financial perspective. And I want to kind of pull pull up more broadly to the system, um, to the whole sewn goods system domestically. So there are a number of challenges in small batch production, but we're seeing these industry clusters of sewn goods kind of reemerge in the U.S., like in Detroit with Tracy Reese, with Alabama Channon, and a number of organizations who are starting to train, apprentice, and incubate small batch manufacturing businesses. And we were curious to know your perspective on how these programs are a solution to the challenges that we've seen in the domestic sewn goods industry across the board. Yeah, that is a very good question. And I just want to place in the background the fact that in 2020, we basically had a national security issue because there were not people or materials to make protective equipment, right? So like we had COVID and we're so accustomed to buying things from overseas that when people overseas had health problems and then there was just like this big shutdown in the transit system that we didn't know what to do. So I think that for many reasons, it's important to have manufacturing of all types, especially clothing. The challenge is that the domestic sewn goods uh, industry Bases is largely that domestic sewn goods, the domestic sewn goods industry has almost been decimated, right? So I am really excited about the places that are doing manufacturing, and that's, you know, Detroit, that's the Triangle area of North Carolina, of course, uh, Custom Collaborative in New York, and some others. I'm also excited about the work that's going on in. Los Angeles and in other places that's advocating for fair and decent wages for the people who are doing the work. I think that it is an extraordinarily big error to continue to outsource manufacturing to other countries because so it's because it's so inexpensive, not just because that means that people here don't have jobs, but it also really deflates the price of clothing to the point where we value it so little that we throw it away, right? I just read an article saying that 50% of fast fashion is made from new plastics, right? Meaning polyester and all these, and nylons and all these other materials. And so that means we're just producing, 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 but we're producing goods that are really degrading the environment and we're producing so much because it's so inexpensive. And so if we do produce here in the United States and we at least abide by minimum wage laws, hopefully living wage principles, then that really strengthens this country in terms of our environment, uh, people being able to earn jobs that support themselves and their communities, and also having clothes that we value and that fit. So so there are many reasons why I believe it's really important to have domestic manufacturing, but definitely 
human rights and environmental sustainability are at the core. I love that you said that about how we've devalued clothing so much that we don't even understand like the actual cost. Like the, the average consumer doesn't can't associate real cost of of producing something and I or producing a, a garment. And I feel like it's to the point where where some people feel that fashion, whether it's even a t-shirt, is is something frivolous and like not something of value. And so I, I just feel like there needs to be this kind of reimagining or repositioning of clothing as something that we all in, something we all engage with and something that has an intrinsic value just based on yeah the raw materials used to make it the people that that produced it so i really love that you said that sure i mean you know even as, as i think about it like this cup it's um like a insulated cup that i use for my water like people will pay more money for this or for their little fancy thermos than they will for a piece of clothing <laughs> right and this is made by machine and the clothes are made by people and i think that there is a huge disconnect as you were talking about earlier about the skill and the labor that goes into making clothing. And I know that firsthand because I did a couple of webinars and I was trying to teach people how to, lay people, how to make masks when everybody was trying to make masks. And people just gave up, right? Because it's difficult, right? And so to think that you can't make a mask, which is really just a square of fabric, but you want to pay $4 for a top. And so it's it's it, there's this huge gulf between what we think should be and then what actually is. And yes, we all have different values, but it would be to all of our benefit, I think, if we valued the clothes that we wore, even if it's just for the environmental issues. I think what gets so sticky about it too, in terms of a like macro conversation about the dynamics, having so much wealth stratification, inequality, and poverty not just in the United States, but globally, and kind of evolving our cultures to be, not that we weren't aspirational before, but I think people, we are trying to live lives that are more in line with a value of equity. But how do we do that when we don't actually have equitable access to quality products? They're gonna, going to last for a long time, or even to, from a like a step back from that, even just to things that are like in fashion and in seasons, that as we want to step out into the world with an identity that aligns with us in terms of how we demonstrate that in our clothes to have access to that as, as human beings. And so I think it gets so tricky when we talk about the values that we have and wanting to espouse those values and how we shop, but we don't necessarily have access to doing so. And then you add on top of that, that we have this huge oversimplification of challenges in our country across many issues. It's not just fashion. And so I think generally we are not having enough conversations around the system in its entirety that we sometimes like isolate things and it allows us to have these simplistic perspectives and not really understand all of the levers that we need to be pulling at the same time. That's like, yes, we need to be supporting a sewn goods industry that is valuing someone who is actually sewing our products and paying them at least a living wage, a wage where they can, they can thrive, not just survive. And then also think about like the business models on a corporate scale that are really that have caused destruction and wrecked havoc across the world in terms of a, a sun goods economics model um, by benefiting off of economies of scale and the race to the bottom. That it's like, how do we address these things at the same time and balance them so that we can create a new system? 
That's kind of where our question around the challenges of a domestic stone goods industry came from, because the model that you have is functional small. And we're so curious. I mean, we've kind of studied the clusters in Seattle and LA too. And how do you build it? How do you grow it? Yeah, that's a great question to thinking about scaling and challenges because a challenge to scaling is definitely investment. So definitely one of the things that we're looking at is, you know, working with some other companies that are focused on uh, sustainability so we can scale the work that we're doing. And so Custom Collaborative is in conversations about that now with a few. Um, Really, it's going to necessitate, I think, creating and investing in a whole new system. And yes, garment production is inexpensive because mostly because the people who make garments aren't paid well, but there are plenty of businesses that have scaled that pay people well, right? And so like, even if you think about, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind is the auto industry. Those jobs are not any more complex or difficult than fashion manufacturing, but they're well-paid jobs, right? And so I don't think that there is, I think that we are able to scale whatever we want to scale. And I think that as a society, it's all about what we value. And so at Custom Collaborative, we say that we value innovation. We value the environment. We value women, women who are parents and who are caretakers of elders. We value education. And so that is what we invest in because we believe that there is not any portion of society that you can cut out or or not invest in and, and still have a thriving society. Mm, that's powerful. We scale what we want to scale. <laughs> I think we do sometimes make, uh, we make a lot of excuses about why we can't do things. And uh, one of our, our more recent conversations, our guest, uh, we were talking about living wages and his point was just pay people more money. It's not that complicated. We don't need yeah. to like run all these metrics and do all these analyses. Just pay them more. It's pretty simple. <laughs> Ask them how much they need and give it to them, basically. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And if like people can invest all this money in like self-driving cars and end up running people over, and why do we need self-driving cars <laughs> anyway? Certainly. We can invest money in actually paying people so people can buy what they need and they can live lives with dignity and hope and and opportunity, for sure. I'm curious too, Ngozi, so in this conversation of scale, scaling what we want to scale, one of the questions that's been on our minds is the balance between scalability and replicability, because we do kind of operate in a world where we say that things that can scale are what are more valuable to society? And is that the right question that we should be asking? Does something need to be scalable to have a global impact? Or do we also need to look at, can it be replicable across the world and have an impact in in a different way? There's a lot of thinking for after lunch. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I love the idea of like separating growth and scale and replication. I think that we could scale custom collaborative by being in other cities, and that's part of our goal. I think we can grow custom collaborative by expanding our resources here. So that's like space, instruction, et cetera. I think that we can replicate important principles of what we're doing 
in other places and across industries. So if what we're doing is preparing women who are no or low income and or immigrants for careers in sustainable fashion, we could just as easily prepare that demographic for careers in beauty or for careers in environmental protection. So what we've done is figure out here are the core principles that one needs to have in order to leverage people to success. So we've learned a lot of lessons. So we could replicate ourselves, yes, but I feel like at the end of the day, our best and highest use is to be able to say, here's what we've learned through our pilots. Here's what you need to do. And everybody start doing this. And eventually people will be invested in and supported in the way that society needs. People will make living wages and custom collaborative can shut down, right? Because custom collaborative exists because there was a gap. There was a gap in who was serving people in what way to add society. So then if we close the gap, I can go do something else. So it's really about replicating what needs to be replicated in order to get us to the next place. I appreciate that. Yeah, no, I appreciate that focus on on mission as well, that in an ideal world, there's there's no need for organizations like Custom Collaborative, but filling a gap while there is one and and trying to look at, it's not filling a gap for, in perpetuity, it's filling a gap to have the gap be filled itself. Because there's a deficiency in the system already. Yeah, yeah. I mean, isn't that how sustainability is kind of viewed in general? Like technically these sustainability offices shouldn't exist or these positions. So we'll see, we'll see if we can get there, but. That's right. They shouldn't exist. And if they they (laughs) do exist, they certainly shouldn't be siloed. I actually um, Mm. was just going through an ad and it was this huge personal goods company and their tagline was something to the effect of, we exist for sustainability. And I'm just like, what in the hell are you talking about? <laughs> right? Like you exist to make a profit for your shareholders. And like, how dare you say that as you're selling this stuff in this plastic thing? And so it's just like, that's mm-hmm. not why you exist. And stop trying to confuse people while you can squeeze the last dollar out of all of us by making, you know, a horrible, a bunch of horrible stuff. So here it is. I'm sorry, I misquoted. Our purpose is to make sustainable living commonplace. But, you know, as I look mm. at the ad, there's like all these shower gels and big <laughs> containers and like multi-packs and like there's all these chemicals. And, and so part of it, I think that one of you mentioned earlier was about like what people know and what we understand and what we learn and what do we think is, is actually real. So like, how do we get to a sustainable planet? How do we get to circular systems? And I would submit that it is not through buying this consumer good that's on sale at this, you know, multi-warehouse organization. Agreed. I think we want to shift the conversation a little bit um, from talking about sewn goods to more around leadership in the industry and the change that's needed. We know that you've been really dedicated to bringing anti-bias and anti-racism consultants in to work with your team and long before last summer when it became really popular to do so. And this type of leadership in the fashion industry was relatively rare at the time in, in terms of the general kind of 
pop culture conversation about sustainability and fashion, that that wasn't really happening at all. And we were curious how this has changed the culture at Custom Collaborative and kind of what that has felt and looked like for your team, having been on this journey for, for multiple years now. We, yes, have been on this journey for a while. Our first class of training students started in October 2016, and we started that group with saying like, okay, so here are our core rules and you all make up the rest of the rules yourselves, but like, how do you engage in a classroom? How do you engage with one another? How do you treat each other? So it's always been part of our work. I think it was 2018 when we asked people, you know, in our program to start on the first day to introduce yourself with your pronouns. And that's like not necessarily revolutionary, but I do feel like there's kind of like a certain like strata of people who were doing and thinking about that. And so part of our work has always been to make sure that all of the things that upper and middle class people know and think are regular, that we introduce all of, all of our participants to those same things. So they're not like on the outside and they feel like they understand conversations that are going on and also that they feel that this is a safe place where they can express themselves and be who they are. In I think it was 2018 or 19, I was just looking back over our financials and I realized that we had spent 2% of our budget on racial and gender equity training. So this is before really the term anti-racism was popular. And I wrote about that in one of our newsletters. It has always been central to me personally, equity and justice. And when I started Custom Collaborative, I started like with 10 values written out. And among them were like, you know, make beautiful things that people love, but also treating people fairly and equitably. So that's always been part of it for us. And I think that, yes, we've always been doing the work. And then in 2020, after George Floyd was murdered, it became clear to me that the way I had been dealing with you know, racial and gender injustice and not talking about it too much because it might make some people uncomfortable, you know, funders or whomever else, didn't serve anybody. It didn't serve anybody except for, it didn't even serve the people who I thought needed to be kept uncomfortable because like people can't grow unless there's discomfort and people certainly can't grow if they believe a lie. And so at that point, we just looked back at everything we were doing and we decided that if we were going to send women to workplaces, then we needed to make sure that those workplaces were not just safe for them, but places where they could thrive. And especially in the fashion industry, which has been so white and so exclusive, there were a lot of people who, you know, could very well be nice, but nice isn't what we need, right? We need just. And so that's why we started doing this training to make sure that we were sending our participants again into places where they could thrive and be respected and people could understand them. And so whether it's because, you know, people, whether they were going to be treated differently because they were, you know, possibly, you know, housing insecure or had had involvement with the criminal legal system 
or were a young mother or had not finished high school, like whatever it was, we wanted people to be able to see them as them. And so we made a requirement that people uh, who wanted to work with us would engage in our anti-racism training. We have gone on to even train others who don't work with us at all, but I think that people find it valuable. And the way we do it is, is pretty clear for people where they are, and they can decide where they want to get to in terms of being anti-racist and using anti-racist again in the popular vernacular, meaning anti-ageist, anti-ableist, anti-transphobic, you know, homophobic, all the above. So with that almost um, approach shift for you as a leader and kind of living in this pre, I'm not even sure how to, how to phrase it, it's almost like holding your, the people who work with you, holding them accountable to investing in work that is going to create success for the women who are going through your program. I'm curious to know, was the shift different than what you thought it was going to be before you decided to hold them accountable? I don't even know if I thought about how people were going to feel. Like when we made this shift, I I just knew that in order to have integrity, both as a leader and to be an organization that like walks the walk, that that is what we needed to do. You know, I don't know if we've gotten pushback. If we have, it hasn't come to me, but I also feel like at the moment when we started it, people were searching for a way to do something other than put up a black box on their social media, right? I think that people were looking for a way to figure out, well, how do we maintain the idea that we're good people in a cynical way, but then also some people were thinking, okay, well, how do we do the right thing or get on the path to to the right thing? I think that a lot of places started doing anti-racism training. I saw like a lot of people like getting certifications from places that like I even know myself, like this is a racist organization. How are you certifying people in anti-racism? But hopefully everybody has learned something and at least marginally better than where they were. I was just talking to a colleague today about an organization, actually uh, a potential funder that we talked to last year. And they had the most, what seems outrageous to me, maybe it's not outrageous, but one of the things that they said was, well, you know, you allow people in your programs up to age 60, but that doesn't even really make sense because people retire then. And it's like, really? you don't know what the hell you're talking about. Like, obviously that's not what I said, but to say something like that shows that you're not really aware of what's going on. And yes, you do have a lot of money, but one of the problems is that we've equated money with intelligence or money with success. And it doesn't really Mm -hmm. mean that. It's okay to not know something about certain things. And so it's okay to not know about other people's lives, but it's not okay to make assumptions about that. And so when you make those types of assumptions and you act on those types of assumptions, that's when people get marginalized at work and they're miserable and they can't do the best that they're going to do. Because again, if we all, or most of us have the ultimate goal of saving the planet for human human habitation, then we need to have ideas from everybody. But if people are in a corner, kind of like shut down and protecting themselves, they can't bring their ideas. And so we're not primed for success. Yeah, we definitely have to disrupt that mindset. 
in our country. We have really harmful associations with wealth and poverty and that it means something about you and your capabilities as a human being. And it's just not, it's not based in any sort of reality, just prejudice. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. So I had the, I got to be part of, of listening to the graduation ceremony last year and Gozi and I definitely was watching a lot of what you were doing on social media. And it seemed like a really difficult time to be leading an organization, especially with all of the demand for mask making and PPE and stepping up into that place and looking for support to take that on for the industry. And I'm curious, thank you for talking to us about, you know, what's changed for you and what's evolved in this last year. Is there kind of a number one question that you're asking the industry right now? I mean, we've, we have grown and we've seen a lot of evolution. We've also seen a lot of performative action and marketing. And, but if you were asking the industry one big question, what is it? Related to what we talked about a little earlier, I would ask the industry to transfer all of the funds that they place in sustainability marketing to actual sustainability. And that could be products that could be raw materials. I would love it to be, you know, training people, upscaling people, hiring people. I would love that. But to use that money to help us create a planet and society that we will want our nieces and nephews and children and younger friends to live in. That's my biggest ask right now. I don't, I don't remember seeing that on the question list. I don't have to answer that one. But I think think that's what I would ask for, right? Like use your money in a way that... It's actually meaningful. Yeah. (laughs) You're like going to have an impact. Right, right. To not just pretend you're doing Mm. something, but to actually do that thing. That would be be so amazing. Yeah, it's amazing how many sustainability strategies and frameworks aren't, I mean, they're, they focus on compliance and they focus on materials, but very rarely, and kind of back to our broader conversation around the stone goods industry, very rarely is it around upscaling and training and apprenticing and figuring out how to, how to build people's skills that they already have and contribute to the industry in that way. Yeah. We did an amazing project in 2020 with Slow Factory Foundation And this project was funded by Swarovski and the United Nations Office of Partnerships. And it was about sustainability, but with three pillars. One was like regenerative materials. Another pillar was around um, like recycle and reuse. And the third pillar, which was custom collaboratives, was about creating equitable, basically, workplaces. And so what we did was create an apprenticeship program. And so three of our participants apprenticed with Mara Hoffman around technical design and a couple of other things. And as I hear fashion businesses, especially here in New York, well, that's what I hear most is the ones here in New York, 
talk about how their employees would have been with them for 30 or 40 years and they don't have more people, you know, with these skills and what are they going to do? Like to me, like invest in apprenticeships, right? Invest Mm -hmm. in internships and jobs and job training programs for people, especially people like the ones at Custom Collaborative who've already been trained in sustainability. And in fact, many of them being indigenous and otherwise already have some ideas about sustainability that, you know, might seem new here, but they have this idea and like really this genealogical legacy of what sustainability has been without this name for it. Yeah, I love that because I still feel like the fashion industry is pretty exclusive and it needs to be opened up to more people. There's so many people that want to get jobs, you know, even whether in the sustainability space, because that's what maybe I'm more familiar with, but you know, I mean, even designers, I know I get asked by people all the time if they know of internships here or there. And it seems almost, I don't know, they're so selective and it's impossible for, for people to actually get their foot in the door or it just takes so much work. So yeah, I agree. I think that's really, really important. So we're coming upon our final question. And that is, who is your unspun hero or someone that you would like to call out that needs or deserves some recognition? from our audience and who is maybe not already getting that? I usually answer the question that I'm asked. I'm really big on rules. Apparently that's because I'm a Virgo. I'm not entirely sure, (laughs) but I'm going to try to break the rules. So there are two people that I think of. One, Damien Joel, who is an amazing designer. I first heard of him two years ago and I was listening to NPR and I was just like, oh my gosh, I have to meet this person and then found out he's in Brooklyn. So I just love the work that he does. I would also say Jasara Lee, who is an amazing designer. She was in the top stores in New York. And then the way I understand her to say it is like, had this realization that all of it was unsustainable and this was years ago and that this wouldn't work. And so now she has a smaller boutique where she, you know, takes, you know, high end clothes and maybe repairs them or does something to make them look different. She also makes custom and made to measure clothing, but it's like so sustainable. Not only did I send her a dress that I wanted her to make into a skirt during the pandemic, She also sent us elastic so we could make masks when there was no elastic available because it was all in China because we don't make things here. And really people like her who believe in fashion and believe that it is redeemable and people like Damien Joel who have so much ingenuity are just like the people who we need to see in the industry and lift up and and follow their lead. Wonderful. Thank you so much for both of your your Unspun Heroes, and for for being with us here today. Yeah, thank you for having me here. It's been really exciting. I've got a lot to think about. So thanks so much for asking such thoughtful questions. Thanks, Ngozi. Thanks for listening to another episode of Unspun and for joining the conversation to create a new vision for the future of fashion and home. Huge thanks to this week's guest, Ngozi Akaro, for sharing her perspective on the industry. You can follow Ngozi on Instagram at the.ngozi and follow Custom Collaborative at Custom Collab. To join the conversation, follow us on Instagram at wearepopulation or visit our website, wearepopulation.com. 
Unspun is produced by Population, co-developed with Corey Cambridge, and mixed and edited by Compost Media Flow. Our theme music is by Richie Quake and cover art by Ryan Welch Designs. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Podcasts.